Many of you know that the process has been in existence for more than 50 years. And one of the things we've known for years is about intuitively the ability to change the brain. Today's conversation is with Barbara Aerosmith Young. And now we have confirmed, based on science and machines that can measure neural pathways, that in fact the brain can be changed. We knew it intuitively, and Barbara Aerosmith Young knows it intuitively in her childhood. Listen as she takes us into that experience and what she does in the world today in helping people change their brain. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and today we have Barbara Aerosmith-Young with us. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation about the brain. Everybody get ready, because Barbara Aerosmith-Young, when she was young, experienced many cognitive struggles. Did you know they were cognitive struggles at the time, Barbara? No, not not at the time. I just thought uh, I wasn't intelligent. Stated so simply and somewhat painfully. But you go on to write a book, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain. You were featured in a critical book about the brain. What was the title of that book? Uh, The Brain That Changes Itself by uh, Norman Doidge, who's a research uh, psychiatrist. And it was really a book that kind of put neuroplasticity out on the world stage for people to uh, understand not only the concept, but practical implications in terms of transforming people's lives. Yeah, so neuroplasticity is the key word there, and research is the other key word. And Hoffman, in 1996, more than 26 years ago, you did the Hoffman process. And I guess that's where this conversation, maybe the Venn diagram, Hoffman and brain neuroplasticity. So what else would you add? You've, you've started this school and this program and this research-based methodology around cognitive exercises that help people rewire their brain. Is that how you would describe it? I would. And, you know, my little ambition is I want to change the face of education around the world. I really want to put the brain into the education equation. I mean, you know, we recognize uh, that the brain is critical for learning. And though, if we look at a lot of educational practices, it's kind of like a passive passenger that that comes along uh, with the educational process. And what I argue is if we can understand the principles of neuroplasticity, which simply means our brain is capable of 
functional and physiological change. So if, if we can recognize that we can actually change the brain in significant ways that enhances the learning process, why not, starting in grade one, include cognitive programs and cognitive exercises along with learning curriculum? And, you know, what would that change in terms of uh, humanity? I think it would make people, you know, more critical thinkers, more uh, rational, more self-aware. Lots of positive benefits would come out of that. So that's kind of my mission is to um, really transform how we think about uh, education and incorporate the brain in that equation. I mean, it feels confusing for a moment there because the brain helps us learn, and yet we're not taking the brain into account as part of what you're saying in the learning of it. So will you share a bit more about it? Because it sounds like let's not just teach children about uh, information, but let's also engage their brain in developing so that they can acquire that information more efficiently. You've summarized it really, really well. Like, I mean, a lot of education, and I, I know lots of teachers around the world, and, and they are passionate and want to make a difference. So this is not bashing teachers. I always like to look at the presuppositions under what we do. So if we look at education, still in most cases, the presupposition is that the learner is a fixed black box. So I'm a little black box and I have my strengths and weaknesses based on, you know, my cognitive profile, you know, how my brain is working. Nothing is ever working all at the same level. So I'm going to have some strengths. I'm going to have some things that are just kind of adequate and I'm going to have some areas that are, are, are challenging. So currently the best practices in education will recognize that they're, they're different learning profiles for each individual. But then what they do is they will adapt the external. So they're going to adapt the curriculum to match that learner's profile. So the profile's fixed. We're going to change how we deliver the curriculum to meet that profile so that the learner can engage with the curriculum. I'm actually saying the learner is not a fixed black box. We can actually change that black box. We can enhance and strengthen the brain in really fundamental and critical ways. So thinking, processing speed, um, reasoning, working memory, so that we don't have to adapt the external. We can change the learner's ability to engage with what's out there in the external world. So it, it's just a very different way of, of thinking uh, about what is the purpose of education and how we should go about it. And I'm starting two pilot projects, one in New Zealand and one in Spain, uh, where in grade one, 30 minutes a day, five days a week, the students are going to be doing one of my cognitive exercises that's appropriate you know, for what they have to learn in grade one. Then grade two, the students are doing a different exercise. So all the way from grade one to grade six, they'll be doing different cognitive exercises. And I'm really excited about that. I wrote that in the end of my book. That was my vision for education. And actually, it was a good friend of mine who is now a Hoffman teacher that said, be bold, like put your vision in the end of the book. And I thought, mm, I don't think I can be that bold. But I listened to her and did it. Beautiful. Yeah, this will not happen in my lifetime. Well, here I'm still alive and it's happening. You know, so it's kind of like if you don't speak it and put it out into the world, 
it will never happen. So be bold and put it out and it's a possibility it'll happen. You know, it might be hard for listeners to get that the brain changes, that there's neuroplasticity, that we can rewire the brain. That, of course, might seem uh, natural and normal. And well, of course we can do that, but we have to provide the context of how the brain has been viewed for centuries. And this is part of maybe the problem with some of the educational system in that you, the profile is fixed. I love that. The profile is fixed. Uh, let's change the data around it. And you're saying, no, no, let's not change the data. And it's not a black box. It's not a fixed profile. We can actually help the brain grow to integrate information better, quicker, faster. And so part of your work is based on this idea that the brain can change and new neural pathways can be wired in. How did that go from the old story and the old idea that the brain is fixed to the new one? What happened? For me, it was a story of desperation and need. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned, grew up with very significant learning difficulties, very significant. And I was identified in grade one. Uh, and at that time, they didn't even have the idea of a learning difficulty. It was a mental block. So I was diagnosed in grade one having a mental block. And of course, I thought I had a piece of wood in my head, like a block. And, you know, I was basically given a life sentence, told that I would never learn like other children. And my whole educational career would be a struggle. And my mother was told, don't have high expectations for your daughter because she won't amount to much. Uh, so this was in grade one in the 1950s. So this was the time of the fixed brain. Basically, you know, the belief was the brain you're born with is the brain you die with. If there's any difficulty, you know, you just have to learn to to accept it and live within your limitations. And I was really lucky in my father was a scientist and an inventor, and he had this belief that he instilled in me. He said, if there's a problem in the world and there's no solution yet, he said, it's our responsibility to go out and find a solution. And then he said, if the rest of the world tells you you can't do it, he said, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. He said, this is how science goes forward. So I had this kind of mantra in my head. I had no idea what was possible and I had these struggles. So, you know, the teacher was correct. All of my schooling was incredibly challenging. And in grade eight, I attempted suicide because I couldn't imagine elementary school was such a struggle. And now I was going to high school and I just couldn't imagine how I could cope. And thankfully, I didn't get the instructions right. So I'm still here. Um, but it was that level of, of pain. So I kept hunting, you know, with that idea that my father had planted in my brain. And it was in 1977, somebody handed me a book that changed my life. And this was written by Alexander Luria, a brilliant Russian neuropsychologist. And really interesting, 
it was in August of 1977 I was given this book, and I believe it was August of 1977 he died. So it, it just felt kind of prophetic. And as I read this book, The Man with the Shattered World, it was telling the story of a Russian soldier who in World War II had a very localized head wound. And so the book was his journal describing his, his challenges and then Lurie explaining what was going on in his brain. And this was my aha moment, because as I read this man's journal, I was keeping a journal. And we were describing exactly the same problems. And I knew I didn't have shrapnel in my brain, but I was born this way. So now I knew it was my brain that wasn't working. And before that, I knew I had problems, but I didn't know the source. And to solve a problem, you kind of have to understand its nature. So that was the first piece of the puzzle. And then the next piece was Rosenschweig's work uh, out of Berkeley, and he was studying neuroplasticity in rats, you know, and finding that with rats, if you gave them a really enriched and stimulating environment with lots of toys to play with and activities, they became better at learning mazes, which is like a rat intelligence test. And when he looked at their brains, they had changed physiologically. So more dendrites, so more synaptic connections, more neurotransmitters, more glia cells, enlarged capillaries. So he argued uh, this concept of activity-dependent plasticity. So, you know, you, you mix up the activity and it drives neuroplastic change in the brain. And I thought, you know, if rats have neuroplasticity, you know, surely humans must, right? And so I remember going to my professors at that time. I was studying school psychology at the University of Toronto and uh, doing my master's. And they all said, and, and I started talking about my learning challenges, and they said, basically, learning difficulties have nothing to do with the brain, number one. So, you know, it's not the brain. And they said, even if they do, your brain is fixed. So there's nothing you can do about it. And I remembered my father's message. Don't be limited by conventional wisdom, right? If, if the world says you can't do it, go out and try and see. And I had no idea if, if I could do anything but I tried, and I created the first exercise for myself in 1978 and went through this whole process, and at a certain point, realized there was human neuroplasticity because it was like after this you know, certain level of the, the exercise, I could do things that with the best will in the world before I had been unable to do. It, it was kind of like you know, the blinders came off, my brain started you know, functioning, and then I had I had multiple learning difficulties. So then I invented another exercise for a spatial problem because I was always getting lost. I can now navigate around the world without getting lost. And then I created a third exercise for uh, a part of my brain. I was really clumsy and awkward and didn't know where the left side of my body was and saw change there. So that's the beginning of this work. Yeah. So you were able to not just know that your brain that it was your brain that was the problem you you kind of put two and two together there but then you also developed these exercises for your brain and you i imagine you practice them every day what kind of exercises were they how long did it end how long did it take to, to see the changes each one was was different. So the 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 one that where I couldn't grasp concepts, like for me, it was I couldn't be having this conversation with you before because I would listen to people talking to me. I mean, I could recognize the words, but I I struggled to comprehend. Right. So what I would do is I would 
memorize what somebody said, I would walk away and like a little tape recorder, because I had a verbatim auditory memory, I would play it over and over again. And it might make, take me two hours to understand what that person was, was saying, but that person hadn't waited for the two hours to, you know, for me to figure it out and then have a conversation. So for that problem, which is kind of like attaching meaning to things and processing and seeing relationships and connections, I used an exercise with clocks. And it wasn't about learning how to tell time. I was now 26 and I still couldn't read an analog watch. I couldn't tell time. And Luria talked about if somebody has a problem in that part of the brain because they can't see connections or relationships, they can't read clocks because a clock is seeing the connection, a spatial connection between an hour and a minute hand or an hour, minute hand and second hand. And they're all relational. So it wasn't that I wanted to learn how to tell time, but I had to figure out how can I force my brain to process relationships. So that's what I started with. Several of the beginning development work ended up in the wastebasket, right? Because it didn't do anything. But over time, I started drawing clocks, reading clocks until, you know, I couldn't get any more accurate and any quicker. And then I added another hand, right? Because this idea of cognitive complexity, if you master something in a really fast and automatic, it's not going to drive neuroplastic change. You have to kind of, it's like that sweet spot of, of even like in physical exercise where you have to just sort of push the limits. So then I added another hand and then another hand. And eventually now we have 10 handed clocks. I mean, there is no 10 handed clock in the world, but it's like processing 10 relationships simultaneously. And the only two people uh, over the last many, many years that have looked at those clocks and been able to figure them out without an explanation was a, a um, an astronomer that had been instrumental in discovering quasars, radio emitting galaxies, and the other was a physicist from Harvard. So I thought, I'm on to something here, right? Like at that level of, of complexity. So the idea is to, you know, in my work is if you understand the nature of that part of the brain, like which was by reading Luria over and over and over again, you then intuit what is an activity or a task that is going to make that part of the brain work hard, right? But but again, you have to calibrate the difficulty because if you make it too hard, the brain is not going to engage. And if you make it too easy, again, the brain won't engage. So you, you have to, yeah. Yeah, I, li- I really like this idea of both, as you said, a- akin to exercise, you want to challenge the brain, but not overtax it to the point of shutting it down. But a brain that that grasps something too quickly doesn't actually grow any neural pathways, so it has to be stressed a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. And and then we all like to go on automatic pilot. I mean, you know, let me tell you, I like to go on cruise control at times and, and do things that are really easy, but that isn't going to drive um, neuroplastic change. And I mean, and if I think about Hoffman, you know, in terms of my experience with it, it absolutely drives neuroplastic change because it gets the individual to kind of go a different way, not respond habitually, right? Like not not kind of that knee-jerk reaction or be within patterns. It's, you know, to sort of break that automatic process and go a different way. And that absolutely drives neuroplastic change. Yeah, I think I'm glad you brought up Hoffman because uh, I was going to have us go there. But I I think part of what, and I'm so curious about, this is why I've 
in a way, excited to have you on because um, the way we hold it, and one of the ways we hold it is that the week itself creates neuroplastic change. Just by engaging in the week, your brain will change. And we have a specific exercise that students engage in many times throughout the course of the week that does that more specifically and pointedly. But tell me about neuroplastic change and the Hoffman process and why your understanding of why it works. Anytime we break habitual routine, right? Anytime, you know, we, we get out of those ruts of, of habit, which can be patterns, you know, we're kind of unconsciously driving behavior. Anytime we interrupt that and move in a different direction, we're starting to uh, drive neuroplastic change in the brain. I mean, we're, we're starting to create new pathways. Uh, we're starting to actually, like neuroplasticity doesn't necessarily mean just strengthening connectivity. It can also be loosening connectivity, right, in the brain. Like it, it just means the brain is capable of change, whether it's either direction. So when you're in pattern and doing things repeatedly, you know, you're sort of going down a, a like almost like on a ski hill, right? You know, there are ruts there and you're in those ruts. And there's kind of not really free will choice because you're just moving in those those pathways. And as soon as you interrupt that, you're and you continually interrupt that, you're lessening those ruts or reducing them and building strength in other areas. I think that's that's certainly from my experience, like with all the, you know, you alluded to, you do have exercises and, and I did it so long ago, 26 years ago, like I, maybe some, I'm sure some of the things have changed, but I think about the recycling, the pre-cycling, you know, all of the things that I took away, the, you know, the elevator, you know, all, all of those techniques, which allowed me to break those habitual neural pathways that weren't very constructive or healthy and build healthier ones, you know, like, so reducing the hold of those negative neural connections, and then building up more positive pathways and positive neural connections. I love that. I just want to highlight that because it feels, it feels important to say that there's a double benefit that when you do this work of rewiring the brain, you get the, as you said, loosening the hold, Barbara, that's beautiful, loosening the hold of the negative connection and strengthening the neural pathways of the positive connection the way you want to show up in the world. Absolutely. And I think that for me, the Hoffman process was profound, you know, in terms of doing that for me in my life. And I really, truly believe this work wouldn't be out in the world in the way that it is if I hadn't done the Hoffman process, right? And I, I made an active decision because I knew that what I had created needed to be accessible in the world. And I knew that I was kind of a, not exactly like a zombie, but I, I was stuck in, in my patterns and realized if I stayed stuck in those, I couldn't bring this work fully out into the world. So that that was my impetus, you know, to, it was a significant impetus to go into Hoffman was so that I could bring this gift that I had created out into the world. And, and absolutely Hoffman allowed me to do that. And it was the process. And then 
taking the, all the tools that I had learned in the process and starting to use them in, in my daily life. Here now, this work, you know, we're in 100 educational organizations in, I think, 12 countries and, you know, continuing to uh, develop pilots. We're working with a group of individuals with addictions, learning difficulties, acquired brain injury, traumatic brain injury, cognitive decline as we age. Like, you know, so I, I will be eternally grateful forever to the Hoffman process because it allowed me to really manifest my gifts in the world, which I don't I truly don't believe would have been possible. You know, and, and part of those patterns were developed out of my experience with learning difficulties, right? You know, I lived in a tremendous amount of fear, what I call amygdala hell. I was on high alert all the time, like vigilant because I couldn't understand my world. So it was scary and threatening, you know, through what I did in, in Hoffman, it allowed me to learn tools and use tools to kind of reframe my world and my understanding of my world, along with the cognitive work that I did together. And I believe the two had to happen. The cognitive work that I did was hugely significant and that was necessary. And then the Hoffman work also was hugely significant and necessary. And it sounds like part of it as well was maybe affirming that this also exists outside of your work. You were certainly a, a learner and a reader and a researcher, but here's one, one venue, the process where it's put into action. And and part of what you're saying, too, is that it gave you the, the gumption, the courage to, to tell your story and create your vision. I know visioning is a big piece of the process. And you mentioned how your friend, you didn't say her name, but I'll say it, Barbara Burke. Tell me a little bit about visioning. We do so much of that in the process. And neuroplasticity. What, what's the relationship between those? I'd say, like, again, visioning, you're imagining a different possibility, right? Like, you're imagining something that is, you know, you get really clear on it and different than where you are right now, right? So, again, that's that concept of building new neural pathways. So, so you get clear on the vision and the details of the vision, and then obviously, you know, the support systems you, you need to bring into play uh, and kind of integrate your you know, emotional self, your spiritual self, all, all of that in sort of aligning with that vision. And I, I believe it changes the even the body probably as well as the brain right at a neurophysiological level to energetically align with that vision I, I don't know exactly how to put it i mean i have this idea of you know freeing energy to dance with the universe i think at at some level that's what it's doing and it, there's a lot of research showing you create the vision and you sort of hold to that vision and then things start to align in in that that direction. So I, th I think it's it is creating you know new neural pathways and energetically aligning in in a certain direction. I, I don't think I can articulate it <laughs> any any better than that. I don't know that, that I did such a good job, but it, but it's really clear. I mean, they you know with athletes, they you know athletes that envision you know like a, a golf stroke and 
what they see is parts of the brain that are actually the same parts of the brain that are involved when you're doing the golf stroke light up, you know, when you're envisioning it. So it's kind of like you're, you're preparing the brain for the action that is going to take place. And in that preparation, it's improving it or, or making it more possible. Barbara, I've often said to students that this work is powerful, but it's also subtle. And so I'm imagining that it's not just a one-time exercise visioning. It, it does have to be done repetitively over the course of a certain amount of time, and then you begin to see the changes. Will you speak a little bit about the progression of change? Yeah, I, I think any good neuroplastic program or when you're driving neuroplastic change, it, exactly. It's not like one day you wake up and, aha, you know, you, you're there. It, it, is, it, it is gradual and subtle, but it, it builds on itself. So, like, each kind of incremental piece of the change, the next piece builds on that piece, then it builds on that piece. And then, you know, at a certain point, you're you're significantly along that path or functioning differently than you were when you started the path. But to me, it's a, a never-ending process, right? Like it's as long as we're live, you know, and as long as we do the work, we will always be driving change. Like I think it's just it's inevitable. And and to me, that's what's really promising. And, and, you know, sometimes we can get stuck, but then, you know, a la Hoffman, you pull out the tools and you start using them. Or in my work, you know, you can kind of go back in and just do a little bit of the exercise and very quickly get back to that point. So, I mean, to me, what's so promising is that as organisms, we're we're designed to evolve and change. You know, sometimes we like to stay where we are, but fundamentally, that's how we're designed. We evolve, we adapt, we change. It's it's just in our nature, and this is what things like my work capitalizes on, and you know what Hoffman does too is that basic imperative to grow, to develop, to change, to be fully engaged in the world in the best way that we possibly can. Barbara, I was thinking about and in reading your story and remembering the little girl, the emotional child, certainly we talk about that in the process. So I, I want to ask about your emotional child and what it was like for you. And do you still connect with that little girl who was bumping into walls and thought she was stupid and thought she had a wood block in her head. What was that? I guess it's a two-part question. What was it like in the process to connect with her? And do you still hold her in your heart, that little girl who struggled so mightily as a young being in the world? The short answer is yes. I, I, still, I still do. I'd say, uh, I mean, she's still in my heart, absolutely. Though I would say that much less fear, you know, like, I mean, she, she was terrified. Like, I, I don't know how else to describe her. I mean, she, she grew up living in 
terror. And I believe as a result of, you know, all that, you know, cortisol and, you know, the, the attack on the endocrine system, because, you know, if you're constantly living in stress and there's no way to relieve that stress, it takes a toll on the body. So I developed an autoimmune disorder. And there's research now to show that individuals with learning difficulties are more likely to have physical disease or physical illness. And it, it makes sense. And we've done research with my work to show that as the students move through this, cortisol reduces in the body. It's a byproduct of the stress. I mean, imagine, you know, our brain mediates our relationship with the world. So it's through our brain that we, you know, understand, kind of come to understand ourselves. We understand other people, our relationship to them, our relationship to the world. So if there's a central problem in that, it has a huge impact on one's um, mental health. I mean, I struggled with anxiety disorder, depression, uh, had a lot of different diagnoses, none of them that were right because they weren't looking at it. It was my brain that was driving the, these challenges. I was described as rigid and stubborn, and I was rigid and stubborn, but it wasn't emotional. It was cognitive because for me, Understanding things was so hard that if I finally came to understand something, I was going to hold on for dear life. And if you came to me and said, well, Barbara, maybe you should think about it from this angle, it actually felt like a physical attack because I'd have to let go of what I'd struggled so hard to come to understand to try to integrate this other perspective. And then I'd have to fight really hard to do that. So... So I was rigid and I was stubborn. Almost as if you were doing it on purpose. You're being willful, Barbara. Just stop it. Like... <laughs> Exactly. Well, I got the strap in grade one because they they did things like that. Uh, and I think it was because I frustrated my teacher so much, right? Like I wrote everything backwards. I read backwards. She thought I was doing this deliberately. And, you know, <laughs> it's just the way I saw things, right? I mean, I wasn't trying to make her life difficult and I would have meltdowns. I, I would just like break down and sob uncontrollably. She'd have to dismiss the whole class, you know, for early recess. You know, it, it was, uh, and then, uh, then my strategy, I realized, okay, if I spend half of my day in the washroom, the teacher's happy and I'm happy, right? Because I'm not in the class. So, you know, we kind of had this little silent pact that she just let me go off and hide out in the washroom. So, it, yeah, so I say I grew up living in terror. Like, I would be afraid if somebody said something to me because I didn't know if I'd understand it. Like, I had this image that, you know, there was a, a banquet, you know, people having a wonderful time and there was a thick plate glass window and my face was pressed against that window wanting to participate but I couldn't because I couldn't understand and then another image I had was you know living in a, a constant fog where meaning was just ephemeral and it would just disappear I couldn't grasp it it was just Challenging. And social relations are, were incredibly difficult because I couldn't trust people. You know, one of the ways you know you're being conned is you hear logical inconsistencies in what somebody says to you and you say, oh, this doesn't quite, you know, match up. Well, for me, there was no logic in my world, no understanding. So obviously there were no logical inconsistencies. So, you know, I was very vulnerable to uh, being taken advantage of. Um, yeah, so it wasn't, it was not a happy time for me uh, gr growing up. Like, so, you know, I, I couldn't excel at sports because of my kinesthetic clumsy problem. I, I couldn't excel academically because, and I wasn't good in social relations. So, like, you know, 
there was every door felt like it was closed, you know, for me. And I joke that I became a workaholic in grade one because I'd come home at lunch and my mother would have flashcards because she was determined her daughter was going to learn how to read and write and do mathematics. I'd come home after school and I'd do flashcards. And, you know, it wasn't fun at the time, but I'm grateful because I did learn how to read and I did learn how to write, but it didn't address the underlying learning difficulty. Yeah, life was, was challenging, difficult, <laughs> unpleasant. Uh, and that's what, you know, by grade eight, where I thought, you know, I just need to end this. Um, Barbara, you have really used your need to understand the world differently, understand yourself differently. Talk about a self-starter and a self-learner. You've been the canvas on which you've experimented to then turn around and help those children who are struggling with the same thing. What a story. What's it like to look back now and see this journey over the course of your years? It feels... um you know, somewhat satisfying. Like I often, you know, if you're on an airplane and they say, if it gets into trouble, those lights are going to come on and guide your path. Like it, it kind of, if I look back, I feel like, you know, those lights were on. Like I, I, I think about nature and nurture, right? You know, my, my mother had won an award for his contrib her contributions to education in the province of Ontario. My father with his belief system and, you know, he had 40 patents to his name, uh, that creative process. So I had the kind of the crucible within which this cooked, you know, in my family. And then, you know, I, the nature of the difficulties I had, and I did have some strengths in my brain, like, you know, my prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning, which was the drive was was strong so i was driven but you know given that i got lost all the time i wasn't sure exactly where i was driving and i struggled with meaning so you know for me you know to try to understand luria i might have to read a passage 75 times right to but but i was so driven and i knew there was something of value here and then when i saw the results i thought i need to take this out into the world to help other people and i always think about really not this is just me personally, not resting on what I have done, but what is the future horizon that where I where I want this work to go? There's a Rilke poem, Der Schwan, which he talks about lumbering through that which is not done. You know, I have gratitude for all of the experiences that led to where I am now. Even my learning difficulties, because sometimes people say, would I have preferred to have been born without those? Well, I can't imagine that because that wasn't the case. And if I was, I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't have created this work. But it's always thinking about how can I make this more accessible? How can I reach more people? How can I help groups that, because of their challenges or difficulties, are going to be marginalized somehow? That's my real passion. I mean, obviously, it can help somebody that just wants to, to you know, get stronger. I've worked with a jazz musician who wanted to um, enhance a cognitive ability to become a better performer, and that's great. However, you know, my heart is really with that student with the learning difficulties that's really going to struggle if they can't, you know, enhance and strengthen that that cognitive function. So I will be, like, I'm never retiring. <laughs> I, I'm going to be continuing, you know, to work in this area until I'm no longer here. 
Wow, Barbara Aerosmith Young, thank you so much. As you said, somewhat satisfying. I see that you are continuing to do this work and even collaborating now. Uh, as you said earlier, you are on some Zoom calls and with people in the Ukraine uh, collaborating in the work. It's ongoing, is it not? It is, um, uh, you know, it, it's always looking at, you know, what's, as I said, the next horizon or next frontier and, you know, constantly we're doing, you know, pilot projects. We're doing one in Toowoomba in Queensland in Australia uh, with uh, young adults with addiction um, and because addiction rewires the brain in a negative way, right, to support the addiction. And we're seeing, we've trialed this now for one year. We're just going into the second year of the project just looked at some of the data and seeing really significant changes, um, you know, for these individuals, again, along with, you know, the therapeutic process, it, it needs to be in combination, but you, you know, start to rewire the brain back in positive directions, you know, then they can even benefit from the therapy more. Uh, the work we're doing with, uh, you know, acquired brain injury, there, uh, we're looking at setting up a research study at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston that's associated with Harvard uh, to look at one of my cognitive exercises uh, with people with acquired brain injury. You know, even the long-haul cognitive impact of COVID, I believe one of my exercises could um, benefit some of the cognitive challenges around that. So, yes, it's just really to see, you know, who and how can this work be of benefit. Like, as you know, I say a prayer most mornings uh, is may this work go out into the world with ease, grace, and heart integrity, and it may it reach those who it can be of benefit to, uh, and then I surrender it. So, that, that will always be my prayer. Ease, grace, and heart integrity. Thank you very much for your story and for the work that you do. And for this conversation, Barbara, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure, Drew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Ras Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love in themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.